Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Jay Williams was arguably one of the greatest to ever play college basketball. He was two-time National Player of the Year at Duke, NCAA champion, and I remember watching him play. He would just dominate games. He went on to be the second overall pick in the NBA draft in 2002. But after just one season, his basketball playing career ended after a horrific motorcycle accident. In an instant, it was all gone and Jay was fighting just to live. In his New York Times bestselling book, Life is Not an Accident, he shares a story of being an athlete, the highest highs and the lowest lows after his accident where he contemplated suicide twice. Now in his 30s, he's convinced that the crash that almost killed him at age 21 was no accident, but a tragedy that taught him how to live and learning how to live, finding purpose and reinventing oneself are all so important right now as we look to emerge stronger in our COVID-19 world. Jay is actually my neighbor here in Brooklyn. He's a doting father, devoted husband, and a tremendous human being. So Jay, so great to have you here and let's to start, let's rewind and walk us through that, you know, devastating injury you had. What happened, and just walk us through that. And talk about the severity. Yeah, I was. Uh, I got lucky to be the second pick in the draft. I played a year for the Chicago Bulls. Really cool moment for me as a little kid. Got a chance to take Michael Jordan's locker uh, only for a year, and uh, you know hear that anthem being played, being introduced that way. And, you know, I, I think the most uplifting thing about the whole experience, Jason, was that I, I was able to get my mother and my father, I was able to help them achieve a level of success that they've been waiting to achieve their entire lives. But my my accident per se was a lot of my ego. It was, I, I had a, a Yamaha uh, R6 and a lot of guys had motorcycles around that time. Uh, you saw Kobe, Shaq, uh, MJ had a motorcycle racing team, um, and for me, it was uh, it was it was something that coming out of college, I was so um, so attached to a lot of my teammates, and then all of a sudden being drafted on a team that wasn't as good, I, I felt extremely lonely. Right, um, it wasn't that same sense of camaraderie, that family type atmosphere that was conducive to success that we had in college in the NBA. Uh, a lot of guys had their own families. We didn't spend as much time together. A lot of guys were doing different things um, on the road than the lives that they were actually portraying at home, which is easy to get caught up into. A lot of guys were messing around with drugs. A lot of guys had their own personal agendas as it related to the games and you know, scoring points and selfishness and things of that sort. And it was very difficult for me to adjust to that life because that wasn't the world I came from you know, playing basketball at Duke. So riding for me was a sense of community because I rode with a whole bunch of guys and the level of communication was extremely high. It was something that I felt like I had in college that I didn't have in the league, but I found through riding with all these different individuals and riding at incredible speeds that I knew I shouldn't have been riding at, but it was like a pack. We were like a pack of wolves. So for me that day, I wasn't riding with anybody. I went to go see my agent and leaving my agent's place. Uh, I had the bike in third gear and I was coming towards a stop sign and I was revving it as if the car, you know, I clicked the bike from third into neutral. 
because it goes third, neutral, second, first. And I revved the bike the first time pretty loud because I think my ego just wanted my agent to see the exhaust system that I had on the, on the bike that I just put. And uh, as he stared at me from his doorway, I revved it pretty loud. Second time, revved it louder than the first and uh, had no protective gear on, no helmet, no jacket, 21 years old. I was only a couple of miles away from my home, downtown Chicago. And um, in the middle of my third rev, I just heard the bike go click, click. And I wish I would have let go of the bike. But once again, my ego was uh, at stake there. And I had a lot of people that told me I shouldn't have been on my bike, but I, I wanted to control my own destiny, which is kind of like the underlying uh, thesis uh, of my existence at that time. I wanted to be in control, right? Um, so I grabbed onto the handlebars, just a knee jerk reaction. And now my momentum was throwing me backwards, but grabbing onto the handlebars kind of pivoted the bottom wheel of the motorcycle and kind of put me on an angle. So instead of running a stop sign, I actually pivoted about 35 degrees to the right. And as I grabbed on, my wrist kind of throttled back the throttle even more. And I was going about 65, 70 miles per hour. And as I looked up, I uh, was going towards my destiny, which was a utility pole. And I tried to turn the bike at the last second to the right. And I clipped the whole left side of my body. So as you can imagine, your momentum was taking you this way, but the pole is solid. So my body stopped. My left side of my body stopped while the right side of my body kept going. And um, the injuries I sustained were, I joke with my wife, I can relate to having a child. I severed my pubic symphysis by about 13 inches. Um, which is what happens when you, a woman has a baby, their pelvic bone splits, essentially. I had completely dislocated my knee, tore every ligament in my knee, and I had torn my peroneal nerve, which is the nerve that sends the signal from your brain uh, all the way down to your lower extremity, your toes, about picking your foot up. Um, yeah, and proceeded to be rushed to the emergency room for a life a life-saving surgery. You were um, hemorrhaging. Yeah, yeah, I tore my femoral artery, uh, which is one of the biggest arteries in your body. So um, that moment for me was very surreal because you, know, you, you always have people that tell you, hey, if you make this decision, these things can go wrong. But I think being 21 years old, feeling, I, I don't think I came across like I was invincible, but my actions may have came across like I was invincible because I get I got lost in a lot of the moments, Jay. And I, I think that's when things really clicked for me that um, life just turned for me like that, like that, you know, and um, that's when everything changed. Well, I, I don't, you know, at 21, I think we all think we're invincible, and I think everyone listening could go back to 21 and think about all the stupid things <laughs> we did, the decisions. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, it's part of life. It's part of the process. Uh, I am, you know, I, I do remember when you got hurt and reading about it and seeing it on TV at the time and saying, you know, wow, like, oh man, that that, that this hurts. And then reading your book, um, which everyone has to pick up because it's not just a book for basketball fans like me. It's a book about uh, adversity, perseverance, 
the human spirit, reinvention, a lot of themes that are very important right now during COVID-19. Uh, it's, it's much bigger than, than basketball. Um, but reading in the book, I remember reading the details and just like on a, a level of, of, of pain and detail of what you endured, uh, I just started to like feel the... <laughs> the, yeah. the tension i remember like i was like oh like you know you, you know when you watch an injury on tv yeah you know i yeah. remember like joe theisman you know I, I grew up joe theisman lawrence taylor i remember watching that hit break his leg just ooh. or or gordon haywood i yeah. remember watching yeah. and just you start and i and I reading yours is like oh my god just a level of pain but at any rate like the story didn't obviously end there um and I want us just to walk through the process you went through in terms of what you did go through to get back from potentially almost dying to, to being able to, to walk. That's like, I'd say, phase one, and then phase two of, of trying to compete again at the level you were competing to before we, we get on to the other things. But just give people a sense of what you had to endure and the length of time. Yeah. Um, I often tell people that I died that day and I was reborn that same day. Uh, I, I, I think there's such a conflation with what you do to who you are in today's time and age. And it's, you know, with unemployment going up so high now, I don't even know what Marcus had of this 26 million, something around yeah. there. Um, the first question we ask people when we meet them, hi, I'm Jason. Hi, I'm Jason. Oh, what do you do? <laughs> it's exactly where we go. And so for me, from somebody who was so used to being in tune with their body athletically and physically, I first off didn't know if I was going to survive after I, after I, I mean, I first started thinking about, it, I threw it all away. I started and actually going towards basketball because that was my identity. Um, and then when I got to the hospital, things kind of quickly changed for me about like, I don't want to die. Right. Like, I, I think the severity of the entire situation kind of hit home for me. But I woke up uh, essentially going to surgery, which is really scary. Her name was Dr. Mallet. Uh, had my hand. She told me that they were going to need to do life saving surgery because I tore my femoral artery. And, uh, you know, as I had the mask over my face and they were trying to get me to relax, I, I couldn't help but think those could have been the last breaths I took in that, that moment in my life very much like a dream. I don't know if you've had a lot of these dreams where you wake up in the middle of the night. Uh, you know, the energy around this pandemic has been really disturbing in a way. My wife and I have been having a ton of dreams. It doesn't seem like, you know, there's stability out there in the, in the universe right now. It feels like things are a little bit up in the air and chaotic. And uh, we all have those dreams where you wake up in the middle of the night and you look at your significant other or you, you take a second to take a moment for yourself and you say, God damn, like, I'm so happy that was just a dream. It was just a dream. And you could take a breath and maybe you take a sip of water or you read for a minute and then you find a way to go back to sleep. So for me, I think coming out of that with my eyes kind of slowly opening up, I was like, this is a dream. This has to be a dream. This can't be my reality. I can't have two metal pins inserted into my pelvis that are extending about you know two and a half feet out of the sky connected to a halo. I can't have my left leg extended in the air with three metal pins you know, stuck in my shin, my knee and my high thigh, holding my leg up and having a tube in my throat thinking, you know, what the hell just happened to me? And, you know, I, I felt so groggy and it kind of hit for me when I looked over to my left and I saw my agent who was the same agent that I left in the doorway that was revving the engine for 
I mean, the guy looked like he had, Kevin, that looked like he had been crying for hours. I mean, his soul just looked empty. He looked pale. Uh, there, there was no juice in his body. It was just, um, he was exhausted. And, uh, and so for me, I, I think a lot of depression and heaviness uh, centered itself within me at that given moment, especially when I asked the doctor, you know, not will I be able to walk in? I was like, will I be able to play basketball again? Um, with her walking back in that room. And I'm sorry I'm not answering your question, but I, you know, it, it's just hard to sum up those two years in a, in, a, in a quick, short way because they were filled with animosity. They were filled with anger. They were filled with 10 plus surgeries. They were filled with, you know, hours and hours and hours and two times a day of physical therapy. They were filled with, psychological therapy uh, with issues I had with my father, issues I had with myself, issues I had with throwing away the one thing that I worked so hard to accomplish, that it was my reaction, it was my decision that had <laughs> shifted the course of my life. It was me dealing with other people reminding me of my decision other people reminding me of what I had thrown away, other people trying to find a bridge to conversate with me about what I was, uh, but me trying to reflect upon, but okay, that's what I did. Was that who I was? Uh, and me also being frustrated, Jason, because I never took the time to think about who I was, who I wanted to be, what I stood for. Um, it, it was this whirlwind of this tornado of chaos um, because I, I did try to come back after a year and a half and I wasn't myself, but I was comparing myself to who I was and I it was physically different. I didn't have that same thrust. I didn't have that same bounce, um, but everybody else's perception of me, I was struggling with allowing that to be my perception of myself. And I don't know if I'm doing a good job of portraying. No, this is, and I think in, in your story, in the book, I think for me, there were a couple turning points, if you will, in this process. One was you were in a dark place, understandably. And at one point uh, you thought about, you know, ending it, taking your life. Twice. Yeah. Yes. And, and then... So, you know, obviously that's pretty heavy and, and let's, let's start there and I'll go to the, the other, I think, turning point in all of this. Yeah. Well, the first time it happened, uh, after I was in the hospital for about a month and a half, two months between Chicago Masonic, I was there for a month in the ICU for about three weeks. And then, um, I got transferred down to Duke, uh, in a private medical plane and I was in that hospital for about a month and, uh, we had rented a home in North Carolina. And I was in my hospital bed and, I, you know, it's very humbling when, you know, two months prior, you're on a billboard going down I-90 uh, and you're competing against Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Allen Iverson, Yao Ming, Tracy McGrady, Jason Kidd, some of the biggest names in the game that you've dreamt of doing since you've been a little boy to the next moment, um, you know, me not being able to feel anything from my waist down. Uh, me being on oxycotton and oxycodone, you know, becoming addicted to that in, in time. Um, me still having uh, sutures in my leg and, 
you know, be frank with you, my my penis not being able to work for a very long time and not knowing if I was going to get uh, rejuvenation back because I had such severe nerve damage down there and wondering if I would be able to have a child and things of that sort. So the heaviness of that moment was just um, exponentially deep and, and having a woman named Judy who was, I mean, literally holding me so I can go to the bathroom, but not knowing when I would have to go to the bathroom or not, not being able to do that for myself. So, you know, I, I had this tattoo on my left wrist that says, believe here. And I just remember staring at it aimlessly one night, just thinking to myself, like, I don't believe in anything anymore. Like, you know, um, and trying to take some dull scissors and just kind of go over that. But I was so emaciated. I mean, I was, I maybe weighed about 150, 155 pounds. Uh, you know, I'm at my playing weight right now. I weigh 195. You know, that <laughs> was a pretty stocky individual. So just being so skinny and uh, just not having the strength to go over that, not even be able to really like break the skin to that degree because I was so fragile and just weak. Uh, and my mother coming in, just kind of praying with me um, after seeing the scissors kind of being by my bedside and just me being exhausted. Um, that the first time I remember somebody talking to me about you know, begging me not to take my life because there was still, I was still hearing that there was a purpose for me. And I didn't know what that purpose was. And, and, and the second time was years later. That was just even darker because I was addicted to oxycodone and oxycotton and I was still taking it even though I didn't need to take it physically. I was taking it more psychologically because I was um, living in New York City and had so many people that would stop me. I mean, like, oh, you're that guy that played, oh, you're that guy that played for the bull. Oh, you're that guy that, yeah, you, man, what, you threw everything away. What, what happened? And it almost made me like, well, I was uh, using the the product to numb myself psychologically of the pain that people would force me to address. And when I didn't take time to address it. So, yeah, I tried to overdose on that. And uh, thank God I was unsuccessful at both attempts. Mm -hmm. and, and so in, in many ways, you, know, you talk about this in the book, you know, you you obviously bounce back. You're 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 here with us today, and I don't want to give away too much of the book. It's a phenomenal book, but you, you bounce back, and there are obviously turning points in one's life when you think about ending your life, and you don't. Um, and to me, there was a, there there was another turning point in the book when you're trying to make your comeback, and years have passed, and it, it's just it's just not working, <laughs> and you eventually say i've been used to it working my whole life yeah and you eventually say you know I, I, i'm done and i'm gonna move on and i'm curious so i'm, I'm thinking about that and i want to hear what was going on in your head and you know grief grief is top of mind right now i think they're everyone's experiencing all sorts of grief with COVID 19. you know we talk about collective grief and whether it's grief you know at, for for missing your for not being able to play or missing a graduation or what have you Gr grief extends beyond you know losing a loved one and people will you know experts will talk about grief there's there are stages of grief you know anger sadness acceptance and healing and i know you've done a lot of work on this so i'm curious how do you think about those stages and 
you know, you went from doing everything to get yourself back to normal, which was a painstaking process, and then getting yourself to a level which you were on the cusp of making it back. Like you were, you were there. Like you were, you were right there. Um, I'm curious, like the, the stages of grief, did they reset? Walk us through that moment of deciding to walk away again. Was that a re- yeah. was that a relief, or did, did, did grief reset itself and they need to experience it again? Or at that point, just walk us through what was going on in your head. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it was a reset. I think it was a transition. And it, the moment that kind of started to finally provide some light and clarity to what this what this experience is to be alive. Right, because it, it, we're having, we're all having an experience right now. Regardless of whether you look at this, if you're watching this interview, or if you're paying attention to conversations you're having there, you're just interacting with a, a set of energies on a day-to-day basis. And if, if you don't try to push yourself to become aware of how gifted we all are to have this opportunity to experience these things, uh, I think it's it's very easy with all the distractions out there to to just kind of roam aimlessly with your life. And I, I think at that juncture of my life, I was trying to come back to the G League. I played for a guy named Dennis Johnson that played for the Boston Celtics with Larry Bird and won multiple championships. And I, I had tore the hamstring off uh, <laughs> my bone trying to come back to the G League and just a series of- um, just, just a torn hammy, just, yeah, tore, just you know, no big, it's not like rolling an ankle. Exactly. You know, and, uh, <laughs> I remember, him kind of spending time with me in the hospital because I, I, this has been like, you know, two and a half years of this journey, ups and downs. I was so tired and I was emotional and him just saying, you're going to come back and you're going to be bigger than ever. And I'm going to be right here waiting for you. I'm going to hold your spot and you let me know when you're ready. And who would have thought that DJ would have been prolific in talking about life more so than the game of basketball, but the game of life at that given time. And, you know, um, I went back to Durham. I was doing more physical therapy and I got in a call from my teammate uh, just telling me that the guy that I felt like was my last bastion of hope to give me a chance in the G League had randomly just died uh, from a heart attack and on the court working out with a team I just played on. And um, I think that was a moment. It was a different level of grief because the grief had nothing to do with me. It wasn't anymore about what I had lost. I started to think about his son that I was close to, his family, what our relationship was, and the words that he had said to me in the hospital just kept resonating with me. And and I think that was a moment where I said I would do a disservice to myself if I kept chasing the person I was. And I think that transformative moment, that transition moment, uh, started the process of let's find out who this has made me. And, um, and and start from there. So I, you know, I, I think there was a sense of appreciation, and you used the word gratitude, because I recognized that, damn, like I'm actually here. Like I'm looking at my feet, I'm feeling my hands, I'm seeing the people I love. I'm here, and those moments of grief and anger had taken me away from the things that were actually present and were right in front of my face. And while I was not paying attention to those things, I was so focused on what I had lost. uh, I didn't pay attention for once about what I had gained. Mm -hmm. So I started to reshift my energy towards that. And that was a a humbling ground zero process for me. Um, 
but I think that was kind of like the first time I started to be like, oh, like this is kind of who Jason Williams is right now in this given time and place. I wonder who he was back then. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I, like, and okay, like who do I want to be? I never spent time thinking about any of that, Jay. So you've done such an incredible job of starting over numerous times and reinventing yourself. And I think it's suffice to say it's sticking, it's working. And this is a theme, I think, for so many people right now. I think there are a lot of people at their crossroads right now with COVID-19. You mentioned unemployment, it's tough out there. And so I think this is is a time for people to reflect, go deep and, and, and ask like the why you know, what is my purpose? Uh, what do I really want to do? So w- what is your advice for people out there who are trying to ask those questions and trying to reflect and, and figure out what is right, what is next? Um, you were kind of forced <laughs> into that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what is your advice for, for someone right now who's asking some of those questions? Uh, first and foremost, I think a lot of the life that we live in, you know, both you and I live in the same building, which is amazing. We do. It's right here via <laughs> Skype and not doing it face to face. It's we live a couple floors apart, but um, it is, I think my first piece of advice is it's okay to be still for a second. Um, we live in the matrix and, you know, I, I, I listened to a lot of executives talk and one executive was talking about, you know, sometimes you have to assemble the plane after you jump off the cliff. And I'm like, I've, I've been, I've been doing that for a lot of my life. It's like, jump off a symbol, 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 symbol. And, and then you're in a matrix and you're scattered and, you know, this person pulls, you know, you in this direction and you go here and you got your kid and you got your job and you got your wife or you got your significant other. And by the time you get through all these things that have happened, you're like, wow, I just had a day. What happened? What happened today? And I'm a firm believer in that regardless of how difficult times are, I have to believe that there is a purpose because if I didn't find the purpose in those difficult times, then I would be doing a disservice to myself and my overall growth and my outlook. So I think the fact that we have a chance to be still, is really good because maybe that would help people, uh, kind of reshift or repurpose what their original intent was and then where to where to put that energy into. And I know we are going through a lot of challenging times. My mother has gone through two kidney transplants and almost died this year from diverticulitis. And she hasn't been able to see myself, my wife, or her grandchild for the past three and a half months, four months. And it's been challenging. I know friends that have lost family members. Um, and I, I know it's tough when you're in that that amount of grief and anxiety and anger to try to find a place within to holistically have an outlook. But I'll tell you what this time does for me. It makes me, the time I have with my kid and my wife and the, the FaceTime that I have with my mom and my dad, like I'm present. Like I'm, I'm, I'm in it because I'm, I think I'm witnessing how special of a moment this is instead of just being, Oh, I can do this in year seven of my MBA, my MBA career, or I don't have to do this now. Like, I'm like, no, there's more of a sense of urgency about what my intent is for right now, because it's meaningful. I don't know what else can happen. So uh, instead of always 
being forward thinking and futuristic with where am I going to go? Like, it's it's good to recalibrate it about where you are and mm-hmm. with yourself and about what's right in front of you first, because that's the only way. It's not until you stop climbing the mountain until you can realize where you climbed from. And I think once you stop and you take a second to, oh, wow, I, I climbed that whole distance. I didn't recognize it. And then you look up like, why was I just climbing without any intent, without any direction? I was just mm-hmm. climbing. So take a second to stop to realize where you want to climb yeah. or get your footing underneath you. Yeah. And so I want to stay on purpose for a moment. You know, purpose is so important, you know, especially we had a, a couple experts on the podcast, the Shares Eyes, their husband and wife, doctors, experts on brain health. And I asked them, and they have very specific details on one of the things with regards to diet that you could do for your brain because the statistics on brain health are are absurd where i want to say uh at the pace we're going i think by 2050 i want to say half of the population over 80 will have dementia it's something crazy like that and i asked them specifically you know what's the number one thing you can do for brain health and they said purpose you know, they didn't say like, you know, eat kale, uh, it was purpose. <laughs> and so, you know, purpose, you know, I, I, there's a quote from your book, which I love. I'm going to read it. And I want you to just stay on that for unpack it a little bit. My life has always had a purpose. I had just been too obsessed with trying to recover what I'd lost instead of focusing on what I'd found. That's when I realized there are no accidents in life. Yeah, it's, um, I think what I had found was a person who was lost, uh, a person who never put any time or energy into himself about what was meaningful to me. I think I also found that I was allowing external things to dictate what my own internal thought was of myself. <laughs> well, it's funny. That leads me to my next uh, passage from their quote from the book, I'll grab, which you say, up until that fateful day, I needed recognition and affirmation from everyone. And so I read that. And I was like, whoa, that's an appropriate message. Because if I see what's going on in the world with social media, this is like, we're all falling into this trap. And so, <laughs> yeah, so you know, what are your thoughts about, look, recognition and affirmation, it, it's, it, it's important. <laughs> and I think we all, we all seek that. We all crave that. And I'm curious, like your perspective on that with just the average person with social media and just h- how in some level we do need that. But when, when does it cross the line and become unhealthy? Well, <laughs> You know, I, I think a lot of people are still navigating that. I, it's, um, you know, for me, I, I think my purpose is growth. And I have a platform on TV that allows me to be very transparent with how I have grown and ownership of mistakes I've made, um, try to provide people with visibility into the complexity sometimes of decision making. And I, I know that that there's a lot of responsibility that comes along with that, but that's something that I neglected for a very long time. And I think the more I focus on different ways 
I can grow and different people around me that I surrounded myself with that continue to challenge me to grow uh, ultimately helps me become a better father, helps me become a better husband and helps me be more self-reflective and continue to learn lessons. I, I think one of the things I see from a lot of people currently is this um, the perception of success and that people want to showcase how successful they are. But, you know, I spend time with people that are quote unquote successful and money does not translate or equate to happiness. And, you know, happiness is another word that I think is interesting because happiness is not something that is sustainable 24 seven. It's about finding those moments of gratitude and appreciation and, uh, and kind of taking this approach, Jay, that this is a ride. This is a journey. And <laughs> this journey is going to be filled with highs and lows. But it's our job to try to find that medium to put this journey into perspective. So I, I don't know if that equates to exactly what advice is for people that are trying to showcase what they have. But and my thing is, like, I, I look at people all the time to showcase things that they have monetarily or mon- you know, materialistic. And that doesn't mean anything to me. Almost in a yeah. way, I hit you a little bit. I'm like, oh, okay, they're a little bit lost. I've been there. Like, I've been there. I, I know what that is. So there's more relativity than anything, I guess, that I see. So, so what does success mean to you today? How do you define success for you? Um, teaching my daughter something new every single day trying to do something that will make my wife happy. You know, our, our relationship, I, I think I brought a lot of baggage into our relationship that I, there are things that I didn't necessarily address relationship wise with myself because I was so focused on me and my own growth. I'd never been in a relationship and focused about relationship growth. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, and so listening to Esther Perel, who is incredible, by the way, yeah. and she gives this analogy about, you know, I, I think I had become so, I repurpose a lot of my own intention towards my new career, right? Because, and this is a whole deeper conversation. I'd love to get your opinion on it. As a guy, right? Like I couldn't provide, I couldn't give my significance other, uh, I wasn't ready to provide a family until I can, I had to figure out me first and I had to be able to provide because that's what a man does. And, sure. And, you know, so I, I think I kind of reshifted a lot of that towards my new career and Esther gives this great analogy about, you know, when you walk into your home, like what's the first thing you think about? Like what's the first sensation walking into your house after a long day gives you? And I was like, oh, I found myself answering the podcast. Like, oh, I can, oh, I'm home. I had a long day at work. And she's like, okay, so you had a long day at work. So that means what you're saying to your significant other is that, I had just given so much energy and time into my job that my energy in my job is more important than my significant other that I just walk in the door with who's dying to see me and dying to find out about my day and they want to exchange my energy. But you're saying, no, your job is more important. I was like, oh my God, I've been doing such a disservice to my wife. Like, I haven't found things like before I go into work, I'm strategizing. I'm thinking, how can I articulate this differently? How do I do more research here? wow, how come I'm not putting that time, energy, and effort into my relationship? Why am I saving all that for my job? <laughs> like, so what I'm saying to my wife is that I've never thought about that before. I've just been running. Mm-hmm. I've never thought about valuing my relationship more than I value my job. And it just, 
Like that's the kind of stuff that being pushed around the right people helps me think about my growth in those categories too. I, I love Esther. We have a class with her. Um, and I also love, you know, I think some of her message and there's another uh, famous therapist, Dr. Sue Johnson, who I also love. And I think so much of what they talk about is the, it, it's, the way I would describe it is like the, the, the slow erosion that happens in relationships where typically the big thing that happens that you hear about is the result of all these minor breakdown and communication patterns that lead to like this significant, significant thing, whether it's cheating or a big blow up fight. It, it, typically that's the result of something as little as like coming home and what you do, you know, it's, it's, it's so Sue Johnson talks a lot about that. Um, and it's just, yeah, she's fantastic. Um, but I'm, I'm curious also, you mentioned your daughter, how is being a father changed you with regards to life perspective? Uh, it is, and I'll be very transparent with you. It wasn't until I met my wife that I recognized that I was extremely selfish. It wasn't done with malicious intent, but just everything had been about me, right? Um, my MBA career was about me. My accident was about me. My reinvention about finding a job and my career was about me. And then all of a sudden I met my wife and I was like, oh, this is about us, right? But still it was about us, but it was still kind of like, it's kind of about me to a degree, right? Um, my job kind of dictated to us of where we're going to live. She was trying to do things around my schedule because my schedule was pretty demanding. Um, but when my daughter came into the picture, I was like, oh, this has nothing to do with me anymore. <laughs> this is not about me. And I think that lesson that is still ongoing for me, I think has helped me make things more about my wife. And because and, and, I understand it now, I, I think I've never, and sometimes you don't have experiences to understand things until you do. And it's, it's exponentially more rewarding to me than things being about me anymore. I, I, um, it's been such a unique transition to that because now when she learns something new, that brings a different happiness outside of me that I've never experienced or felt before. What school is she going to go to? Um, you know, how, how would this COVID-19 thing affect her education or affect, I want her to see her grandparents to learn from them. You know, what kind of things should I be talking to her about? My wife reads, uh, you know, voraciously about lessons, things. How do we potty train her? Like I just found myself in this whole other world that requires a lot of my attention and almost in a way, a lot of the other stuff that require my attention has kind of taken a backseat, but I've also found my, I found all the things that have taken a backseat to my daughter. I started to thrive at those things. I'm like, hold on a second. I haven't allocated as much time to those other things, but those things are thriving now because I'm putting my energy into something that's meaningful and actually matters. It's interesting to me. Uh, hmm. it's, a, it's a completely different vortex that I haven't experienced before. So you also mentioned you know, having a platform and feeling a responsibility, you know, what, what do you want your legacy to be? What do you want people to think of 
you know, Jay Williams five years, 10 years from now or way beyond? That I am, I'm a human being. I think we, uh, I think we have really lost the definition of what the, what that means. The, uh, especially now, Jay, um, we walk down the street and I'm walking down the street with my family and there are other people walking on the sidewalk and we walk to the other side of the sidewalk or the other side of the street, right? It's like, I feel like our world is going like this in so many different ways, politically, um, you know, internationally, and regardless of whatever people's opinions are about any of that, it's, it just feels like we are extremely isolated and we're very divided. So I think when I go on air, I try to bring simplicity to complexity mm-hmm. to a degree. I try to, like I'll give you an example. Like we had talked about Michael Jordan today and obviously Michael Jordan is maybe the greatest athlete we've ever seen and he's Jordan. But I also try to describe the complexity of the way I was raised, you know, being African-American, I, I'm sure you and I, in the area I grew up, may have had different upbringings. There were things that my father made me way more conscious of at a young age that maybe your father did not. Like I had to worry about, you know, if I if I see an officer, you know, if I had a hood on, like take I, conversation after that, like, take your hood off, or you know, uh, hands on the wheel, and it just didn't seem to be as much leniency. My father would talk to me about things like that, so. I remember having conversations with my dad about people that spoke up about injustices at a very young age, about people that he, you know, really used as a role model to me about there were sensitivities and how you had to articulate what those injustices were because a lot of people have different backgrounds, but listening to Jim Brown or Muhammad Ali and people that were able to draw a line in the sand. And, you know, one of the things that was a little bit of a disappointment for me, even though he's done it in a different way, was that. Michael Jordan was the most powerful athlete we've ever had on the planet, but he never felt like he took a stance on something, even though he right. did in his own way. Yeah. But that's a very complex conversation. And I can have that conversation not alienating Michael Jordan. Like That's a beautiful moment about this the journey that he had, how he had to navigate that. Mm-hmm. The complexity in which he had to navigate that. And, but that that is more relatability to me I can't relate to the guy that takes off from the free throw line. I can't relate to the guy that has, you know, $7 billion. I can relate to that person that struggles with the complexity of how to be more than an athlete, though. And that that's bringing it down to a human level that I think is really beautiful and relatable. And I try to find no similarities to build a bridge between people about, yeah, we all struggle with this journey, even though how, what our perception of success is. Well... You, know, you mentioned struggling. We all struggle with our journey, and you know, depression, mental health is, is you know does not discriminate. And I'm curious, what do you do when you're just having a you know crappy day? Do you have a do you have a go to? How, how do you how do you get yourself out of it? We all have them. What's your what's your go to when you're you're having a bad day? You know, I this moment. That happened to me this year. I, I woke up with my wife and got a call from 
my mom's doctor that my my, my mother had diverticulitis and it, it was septic. Yeah. And the call was a call where the tonality quickly translated to, I don't know if my mother's going to be here anymore. And I had to call a friend and one of my friends was very helpful because it was in the wee hours in the morning to get me a plane. I was on the plane going down and I was stressed out of my mind. I was sad because I spent so much time with my kid and my, my wife that I didn't really spend as much time with my mother as I used to, but I was also a father and a husband and just the, the, uh, the challenges of that. Cause my mother is in North Carolina, North Carolina alone. My dad, you know, my mom, you know, are still legally married, but they're not like together all the time. And in a way, with what I've been able to do in my life, I kind of been like that. Um, I'm her son, but I'm also kind of like that uh, other adult in her life because I take care of her home down there, and she looks at me for responsibilities and things of that sort. I was feeling extremely guilty and sad, and I was listening to Deepak talk about acceptance, and um, so I found myself kind of going through the alphabet like him and getting lost in that mantra of acceptance of bonding of compassion like these words that he expounds upon because he goes into such a layering about what these words mean about you know this because for me that brings me back to the moment i was 21 like i want to control the moment we all do i want to control it and it always helps me recalibrate about I'm not in control at all and it's okay for me to experience this. And it is a sad moment. And I, I don't know if my mother's gonna be here. What are things I wanna talk to my mom about when I see her? You know, what kind of, instead of this being sad and me making this about me, how do I reshift this moment to help my energy be more towards my mother and to not be about me, but make it about her? How do I? help her, how do I help her be at peace or help her fight through this or, and it's funny because whenever I go to those moments, I realize that, that, that that's like the old school me where it's not done maliciously, but I make it about me. So what I'm feeling about what I'm going through and to kind of retransition that energy from me to you or them, that helps me because mm-hmm. it gets me outside of my own funk. And it gets me to what they're going through instead of what I'm going through. So is something you said, I'm going to go back to your last chapter again. I love the last chapter. Guys, you got to read the whole book. Don't don't, don't skip the last chapter. But you also say people ask you the question, you know, if you could give yourself advice to your younger self and you say you never answer that one. Will you answer that today? If you could go back in time and give yourself if I, have you thought about that one or is it still, I don't want to, I, I don't know. I, don't, I can't answer it. No, it's, it's not that I can't answer it. It's that this is how I learned. This is why my spirit is here on this earth. And I almost died at 21. I'm 38 years old. These 17 past years have been, I never thought I would be able to have a child. I didn't know what if I was ever going to be able to find a like a substance type of relationship with somebody that challenged me and that I loved immensely and I would change for and grow for. 
And none of that, I don't think any of this happens that way. If I were to go back and tell my younger self, do it this way earlier, sure. it just changes the, the entire trajectory of my life. Sure. And I don't, I don't know if I would have found this type of purpose if I didn't go through that. Okay. I don't know who I would have been if I had played 17 years in the NBA and made $250 million and what that path, where that would have taken me. I don't know where I would have been with if I didn't have to go through my last relationship with a girl that I loved and, but it just, it wasn't in alignment. And I, I went through a lot of pain that helped me redefine who I wanted to be in my next relationship with my wife. Um, those are all things that were put in my life for a reason for me to take those lessons and become different and better. And that's how I look at life. So yeah, I don't want to go back and give myself advice. Right. So, you know, as a, as a young child, I remember my mother telling me that I guess the parable of uh, the boy with no shoes cried and cried until he met the boy with no feet. <laughs> and, you know, what is that about? It's about perspective. It's about gratitude. Um, you know, we all, to some degree, go, go through something like that, various degrees of severity, whether it's, you know, a loss of loss of someone we love or loss of something that's important to us. But I'm curious, like, what is your perspective on how we can all gain <laughs> more perspective, how we can all live in a constant state of, of gratitude, if you will, for someone who's, you know, been to hell and back, <laughs> you know, you, you, you've lived it. There's, there's real world experience. So what is your advice on how we can, you know, not, not get caught up in the BS of the minutia of, of every minute of every day? There's only one way to do it, and that's to discipline yourself psychologically about the choice you give yourself with all those moments throughout the course of the day. And it's tough, it's challenging, but with all those decisions, you have a choice on what your outlook could be. You do. And I still find myself making the wrong choice, but it is such a different, approach that I have now because I feel I pay attention to myself making that wrong choice. And I quickly go back to why did we make this choice? Why are we going down this road? Okay, let's not do that. So it's, um, it's retooling your mind with the way you think. And a lot of times, look, I, I understand. I, I talk to people. I try to approach this life with empathy and, uh, and compassion, not so much with why'd you do that? I try to understand what led you to a place of why you would do that. And then try to find a bridge that would help you think differently about your experience because it's, I think there's something that, you know, I, I, I've, wrote, I've written down three or four things that just from our conversation and you're the one interviewing me that I've learned from you. <laughs> Seriously, and I, so I, I think there's, it all depends upon what type of mindset that you're bringing into your experiences. And if you enter experiences with a growth mindset, like that could be a change maker, but you have to, you have to want to be aware of what growth opportunities are around you because you can easily choose with all the shiny objects. I joke around like one of my friends 
uh, every time he sends me a random a random note, and I love his random notes. Sometimes I reply back with uh, a giphy of a squirrel, right? And it's like, and I joke with him because it's like my dog. And my dog, I'm like, hey boy, and he'll be and like, right? And it's like there's so many squirrel moments that we have throughout the moment of each and every day. There's so many shiny objects that can take our mind away. And I think retooling how you see those squirrel moments, how you see those shiny objects is like, oh, shiny object, okay. Let me put it into perspective. That takes discipline, that takes practice. And it's mm-hmm. okay to want to practice on how you think. That shouldn't mm-hmm. be something that should be overlooked. It should be something that should be cherished. And uh, should be something that people should try to take moments throughout the course of the day to, to work on. My last question for you, what's the best advice you've ever gotten? Wow. The best advice I've ever gotten. Um, or worst. If that's, <laughs> well, I want to end on a positive note, but. If yeah, you, no, you, no. You, um, I think I say it in my book. Um, I think, you know, to a degree, this is including reflection now. To a degree, like the past should be left in the past because it's easy for it to steal your future or steal your present. And um, I think for me, it's really easy for me if people disagree with what I say or if people try to use words to hurt me, for me to live in this world about what was. And I'm thankful for what was. That's allowed me for what is right now. And I think that's sometimes important, but I also think that sometimes I meet a lot of people, Jay, that don't spend any time reflecting about what was mm-hmm. and going and going. Well, yeah, it leads me, you know, we talk about like there's the victim mentality versus the victor mentality and, and, and creating, we all tell ourselves stories and it's, you get wrapped up in them and there's a lot to unpack there. You know, is this something that, you know, shit, shit happens to everyone and there, and there's various levels of, of shit. And I think you have a choice of how much, is this going to define me? What is my story? What do I want my story to be? And look, there are very, it's difficult. There's a lot of work that has to be done. <laughs> to, can, to I, be, can I say someone that this may be a great way for us to end it because uh, I heard a friend say this one time, and just a random friend, because someone was like, you know, shit happens to everyone, right? Shit builds me. It builds me. So it goes back to that choice that you can allow a moment to define you or you can allow a moment to help you grow. And uh, those are series of moments, man. It shit happens to me every day, right? But it ultimately comes back to your willingness to get up and say, I'm still here. This is what I've learned from the shit happening to me. And will shit continue to happen to me? Yes. But I'm also lucky enough to be here for shit to continue to happen to me. <laughs> that's pretty special. Like, that's my thing. Like, nobody said I have to be here. <laughs> Amen to that. We'll close there. Thank you so much for all that you do and for spending time with us. And everyone, you got to check out Life is Not an Accident. We'll, we'll link to the book in the, in the show notes. But, Jay, thank you. I appreciate you being patient with me for all the times that I had to cancel. <laughs> incredible, uh, you know, TV. This happens when your TV's in your home. You can't escape it anymore. So I appreciate you. Jay.